Morning, glory and evening, Grace America. Happy Labor Day to you. It's Hugh Hewitt and a special Labor Day show uh, put together with the assistance of my friends from Hillsdale College as part of the Hillsdale Dialogues. Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, his colleague this hour, Dr. Thomas West, a professor of politics at Hillsdale and an eminent scholar on Marxist Leninism and many other things. Together last hour, we covered an introduction to Marx. This hour, a little bit different, and it's Stalin and Lenin. And uh, and I got to tell you, gentlemen, at the beginning of this, it's unlike any other Hillsdale hour I've done, which I always take great joy in, but I don't want to make them at all attractive. I feel like we're walking through a cemetery, uh, like, like a vast cemetery of millions and millions of people. And I go back to my college commencement at the front of the uh, audience was Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the rain at Harvard Yard telling everyone that this, these guys had won, that they had they had beaten us down, and Mao was still in his chair, and there were millions to be killed yet in Cambodia. It was just, it's an awful group of people to talk about. And so, uh, Dr. West, I'll start with you. When you pick up Lenin and Stalin, and you, is it possible even to communicate to students the awfulness of what they wrought? Well, I, I think that's that's what gets the students' attention is when they realize it's not just talk, not just academic chatter. This is the real world, and and this is something this is some big deal that happened in the 20th century, and whose ideas, as you pointed out in the last hour, are in some ways still with us. Yeah, if it's a cemetery, Hugh, it's full of vampires because these guys are waking up. They, oh, you're right. It's the zombie. <laughs> as Lenin, born in 1870, dies in 1924. He gloms on to Marx, and I'll let you take it away from there, Dr. West. What does he do with Marx? How does he bend it? And we'll come to Stalin later on in the hour. Well, uh, the, uh, the big thing that, that's, that by the time Lenin got interested in this and, and serious about it, say, 1890s, he had to see that Marx's initial predictions were not coming true in some respects. Marx was predicting the self-destruction of capitalism in Europe. In the opposite, it happened. Europe, the, in Europe, capitalism has gotten stronger and stronger during the years uh, since Mar- uh, that Lenin had grown up. And uh, the workers were not all that revolutionary, as it turned out. Uh, but there was an opportunity that, pre- that presented itself in Russia that where the workers, or at least some people in Russia, some workers, were more revolutionary, more willing to take action and to, to turn against the system. So it was an opportunity that was available there. And, and Lenin had to explain that. Why would we then go, why would we go to Russia for this revolution when it was supposed to happen first in the more advanced Western countries? So that was one of the changes he had to make in the doctrines. He had to say, look, this is not working in that way, and so we have to explain what, what, why is it that in what we would now call the third world, that the opportunities for revolution are better than in the uh, first world. Now, now, it's interesting. He was born into what we would basically call an upper-middle-class family. His brother was also a radical. His brother engaged in revolutionary politics. I think he tried to kill the czar and was himself executed as a result. So he's one of the classic sort of weathermen of 120 years ago uh, going all SDS on the czar. Larry Arn, you mentioned in the last hour, Winston Churchill's career is taking off at the same time Lenin is. When did Churchill become aware of his arch enemy or one of his two arch enemies? Well, I'm going to read you three things that Churchill wrote about Lenin that are wonderful. And the answer is he was aware of all that very early. 
he was uh, he probably learned of of Lenin in the early days of the Russian Revolution because Lenin was a non-entity mostly until then, but uh, he he caught on in a hurry, and it's interesting how Lenin and his team got into St. Petersburg and then began to make their list of people to kill. I've actually been in the house where they were first stationed. Churchill writes about it. See, the, the Germans picked Lenin up in Switzerland and put him in a train and took him to Russia so he could distort Russia. It was a war measure. And I, you should hear Churchill write about this. He says, the Germans were in the mood which had opened unlimited submarine warfare with the certainty of bringing the U.S. into the war. Upon the Western Front, they were beginning to use the most terrible means of offense at their uh, disposal, including poison gas. Nevertheless, it was with a sense of awe that they turned upon Russia the most grisly of all weapons. They transported linen in a sealed train, a sealed truck on a train, like a plague bacillus from Switzerland into Russia. Wow. It's like making him the modern Ebola. Yeah, they sent him from Switzerland. That's very well put. What else did he say about him? Well, he said, uh, he, he, analyzed, he writes it in, in the world crisis, this, the, all these readings are from that, and that's Churchill's history of the First World War, a tour de force, and everybody should read that. And in the last volume, which is called The Aftermath, I'm sorry, in the penultimate volume, which is called The Eastern Front, he, he, uh, he writes uh, this description of Lenin. Implacable vengeance, rising from a frozen pity in a tranquil, sensible, matter-of-fact, good-humored integument. His weapon, logic, his mood, opportunist. His sympathies, cold and wide as the Arctic Ocean. Wow. His hatreds, tight as the hangman's noose. His purpose, to save the world, his method, to blow it up. Absolute principles, but readiness to change them apt at once to kill or learn, dooms and afterthoughts, ruffianism and philanthropy, but a good husband, a gentle guest, happy his biographers assure us to wash up the dishes or dandle the baby, as mildly amused to stalk as to butcher. The quality of Lenin's vengeance was impersonal. Confronted with the need of killing any particular person, he showed reluctance, even distress, but to blot out a million, to proscribe entire classes, to light the flames of intestine war in every land with the inevitable destruction of the well-being of whole nations. These were sublime abstractions. Wow. Now, so, Dr. West, when you write at the beginning of Marx and Lenin, your, your famed essay, that was, it's a question. Was the Lenin-led Russian Revolution of 1917 a Marxist revolution? And beyond that, is the post-Lenin Soviet Union, including that of Stalin, faithfully executing Marx's vision and testament? What's the answer for the radio audience that can't read Marx and Lenin? Well, what I'm what, what I argued there is that the uh, yes, fundamentally, what went on in the Soviet Union was built entirely on Marx's legacy. Uh, that didn't mean there hadn't that there. I'm not saying there were no changes. That there were circumstances that had changed that had to be adjusted. Marx himself, had he been around in, in 1917, would have seen that. Uh, but basically, the basic idea of Marx, the fundamental thought, which was to abolish everything private, to do away with all private property, private relationships, private everything, in the name of this grand vision of, of perfected humanity, and by and using the means, as uh, Churchill just uh, in the quote we just heard, using the means of blowing up the world if need be to get there. That's the authentic Marx. 
Now, he didn't, Lenin did not merely implement, he added to, did he not? And I think he added, if I recall correctly, specificity and sophistication as to the means by which revolution could be leapfrogged and a country transformed. Right. One of his uh, early discoveries was that the working class wasn't as revolutionary as Marx had initially thought it would be by then. And so what that meant was not that you change your project, but rather that you therefore have to put more power into the party and take it away from the actual workers. Uh, people today, you know, I remember when I was younger, when we people you talk about the Soviet Union, they'd talk about how, you know, the Soviets were dishonest. They took power out of the hands of the workers and gave it to the party. That was the whole point. Even Marx early on had said, that the workers had to be shaped and formed into a class, and that was the task of the party. Marx himself never expected the workers spontaneously to figure that out. But Lenin, Lenin was the fire stick that made. You know, I've only yeah. I've only been to Moscow once, and I went all that way for the purpose of going into his tomb to assure the SOB was still dead, and it was closed that day. So I'm not sure. But he hasn't made quite the comeback that Marx has made, has he, Tom West? No, Len. Uh, the uh, failure of the actual failure of the Soviet Union as a nation, as a project, has led people predominantly to be silent on that. And uh, so, Mar- but Marx, you know, he's people can say, well, you know, that wasn't the real Marx, that wasn't the authentic thing. There's always another way to, re- to resurrect Marx from the dead by claiming that all the previous experiments in Marxism were not authentically done. But Larry, in the in the rise of the Islamist terrorist, and actually in the, the Arab terrorists of the 60s and 70s, Lenin lived on, because he very much invented or was one of the inventors of the ideology of terrorism. Well, the, the, the you know, modern mass scientific tyranny invented in the 20th century, especially in Stalin's Russia and Hitler's Germany, those tools are now known, and they're adaptable to more than one thing. And, and do, you, do you place most of the onus 10 seconds on Lenin or on Stalin? Both. I'll say something about that after the break. All right. We'll be right back. Dr. Larion, president of Hillsdale College, his colleague, uh, Professor Dr. Thomas West, uh, continuing on this special Labor Day edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue here on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America. I hope you're having a great Labor Day. Uh, this is being originally uh, broadcast in 2014, a year in which Vladimir Putin has invaded uh, Ukraine twice, a year in which uh, there was an Olympics in in, the, in Russia uh, to begin the year, followed by just uh, incredible killing. It's also being uh, uh, broadcast the first time, first Labor Day, I hope to use it many Labor Days into the future, in a week where Americans are found to have joined a revolutionary movement called ISIS and have been killed uh, in, in its pursuit in the Middle East and Syria. And so we see ideology and terrorism just blossoming all around us in the original homeland of it, Russia, and all across the globe. And, and before the break, I asked Dr. Larry Arn, you know, who owns this, Lenin or Stalin? And he were going to say what? Uh, well, I, I mean, first I'll recommend two books. Uh, one's by the great Robert Conquest. Uh, his tour de force is called The Harvest of Sorrow. And he gives the story of the Ukrainian farms and that, you know, Georgian and those those areas, and the starvation and the collectivization and the death of millions. 30 million. Yeah, 30 million. But in the early in that book, he uh, quotes from a speech by a, one, of the, one of the Bolshevik leaders named Karl Radek at the military academy, and he says that, uh, and this is in 1922, so it's early days, and Lenin's still the man, 
And he says in the speech, he says, you know, we're surprised. Well, he doesn't say we're surprised. He says uh, they, uh, um, Conquest claims that Lenin and the others were surprised that the workers didn't like what they were doing. And Radek delivers the reaction. He says the workers may not be ready for what's to be done. And in that case, the party has to make the decision. And he claims that's the first time they announced that doctrine. But, of course, the doctrine is implicit in, in the whole thing, right? In other words, a great good is to be achieved, and that good is only known to people who are capable of scientific knowledge in the new meaning of science, that is, science is making and remaking and creating out of whatever, whatever the will is. And so they, they mustn't be allowed to get in the way. And if you want to see how that plays out, the, one of the greatest books I've ever read and greatest on this subject is Darkness at, Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kersler. And he was a communist, and he writes this story of one of the guys who's, who's in St. Petersburg. You know, there's a famous picture of all the guys lined up with linen, you know, who were injected like a, poison, uh, like a bacillus plague into Germany, into Russia by the Germans. And they're all in a row, and Lenin's in the middle, and Stalin's one of them, and Berea, and Trotsky, and Bulgarin, and all these guys. And uh, Stalin eventually killed nearly all those guys right? and became the boss. But when they were killed, they all went in public trials and confessed to crimes that they hadn't committed. Bukharin, the last of them, spent two days explaining why all of the uh, confessions were true and sincerely meant. And they all knew when they were, after they'd confessed, they'd get to smoke cigarettes and eat well for two or three days and have some sunshine. And then they were going to walk down a dungeon in a prison, a dark dungeon with one man behind them. And that at some point, undetermined, so, so it's, there's no special ceremony, he's going to shoot them in the back of the head and leave them there. And that's, they know, their fate. And that method of execution, you see, is meant to emphasize that it's a non-event. And in Darkness at Noon, this Rubishoff, who's the main character, he reveals why he did that. Because he had adopted and inflicted on others the doctrine that the individual is nothing and the, and the party is everything and infallible. And so when they finally got him worn down by his interrogation, they put that point to him. And they put the point to him that he had done that himself to his own beloved woman that he had loved above all things and let her be executed. How can you call yourself a man without subjecting yourself to the same thing? And the point of the book is, although none of the men had committed the crimes that they said that they had committed, on the other hand, the confessions were also in that powerful sense true. And that, you have to understand, is the nature of the despotism. It overcomes every human impulse. Every natural human impulse is its specific enemy. Then it released, and we'll talk about Stalin after the break, but Dr. West, it releases to China, where Mao actually perfects the system, doesn't he? Well, yeah, in the sense of the absolute submission of the personality to the party. Yes. That's it. And, and, and so he, he's the he is the well maybe Paul Pot is the ultimate practitioner of this but but now it ought to be one hundred percent discredited but it's not that's what's 
Why does it, I've asked this three times, I'll try again, why can it, how can it endure in the wake of, or North Korea is the perfect example, in the wake of all that it has produced? Well, of course, first of all, don't underestimate the tools of despotism. We have perfected those in modern times. The ability of a government to snoop and spy on its own people and ferret out anything they're doing that's against what the government wants, that's, but, uh, but it's again, you, I think this craving, I, 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 this longing that people have in their hearts for something pure, high, noble, grand, uh, Larry talked about that earlier. Uh, Marx, in a way, denies that, but in a way relies totally upon that longing. Do you think that's, that's what people want, and that's why people are willing to sacrifice themselves over and over again for this goal? Unfair yes. question because it's modern. But do you think Putin is gen- is motivated by the same desire, or is he simply a raw amasser of wealth? I mean, that's a difference from what no, you're talking he's, about. He's uh, people. It, it's very rare for people to be like him and get where they are unless they're interested in power more than wealth. He likes to dominate. He doesn't seem to me, and what do I know, but uh, he doesn't seem to me to have that, uh, he, he's, a, he's a nationalist, but he doesn't have that set of universal doctrines that can set an international movement marching the way the Marxists did. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but he's just a, he's just a despot, right? And that's a type, and he does have all the modern, you know, like it, it, it's take, in, in the classic works you will see that like Aristotle, for example, says that tyranny can't last a long time except by one tool, and that is it has to knock down everything high. And, and so it's essentially, if it persists, degrading to people. Well, what is the art of the, of the despotism of the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany except that they figure out what you love, and they're very good at that, and they use that as a tool to command you and make you do degrading things. In 1984, another book, in the more famous book, actually, in the genre of dark, darkness at noon, what is he made to do at the end except urge his torturer not to do it to him but to do it instead to his beloved? So the truth is, and see, he, here's the case, right? Human life is imperfect, and it's bound to continue to be. But on the other hand, we are gaining strength through science all the time. We, we can do more, boundless wealth, all of that. And so the temptation grows to think we can perfect everything if we'll just try a little harder. And boy, the record of the last hundred years tells us that is a false, false hope. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Thomas West, professor of politics at Hillsdale College. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at a button over at HughHewitt.com. All of them, including this one at Hillsdale.edu as well. And Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Stay tuned. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on a special Labor Day. Hillsdale Dialogue extended conversation about Marx, Lenin, Stalin, and then what happened in America with the American labor movement coming up next hour. Uh, right now, I'm going to ask Dr. Thomas West. Um, Lenin dies young, 53 years old, 1924. And... Uh, and he's leaving behind Stalin and Trotsky, his comrade in arms, and a bunch of these other people that Larry was just talking about in the last segment. And Stalin quickly eliminates them all. Were the ideological differences that have been much mocked, you know, life of Brian, Monty Python, Splitter, Splitter, Trotskyite, Leninite, you know, all the different things. 
Did they really matter that much? Did they really believe things that were that significantly different from each other? No, they didn't. And in fact, uh, Stalin was a master at uh, adopting the position of one faction against the other and then turning right around and, and adopting the position of the people he had just murdered to beat the other faction. Uh, what, they all, what they all agreed on was that Russia had to be transformed from the top down and turned, and turned into an industrial powerhouse and, ultimate, and a military powerhouse so that they could lead the revolution throughout the whole world. This was the goal, to transform the world. You mentioned Putin earlier. Uh, Putin's really a different animal. I, I think the United States, uh, people in the United States, I think, uh, often misunderstand Putin. He's not fundamentally motivated by that Marxist vision of transforming humanity. He's, just, he's a Russian patriot. He's an evil guy, but he's a patriot. He wants, to, he, want, he wants what's good for his country. People like Stalin and Trotsky and Bukharin, they wanted what was good for the communist movement worldwide. And, oh, of course, well Russia was the center of that. Now, uh, the, in an essay sent to me via you, Bolshevism and Stalinism by Stephen Cohen, it begins, Every great revolution puts forth for debate by future scholars and partisans alike a quintessential historical interpretive question. Of all the historical questions raised by the Bolshevik Revolution and its outcome, none is larger, more complex, or more important than that of the relationship between Bolshevism and Stalinism. Uh, so unpack that. Again, people can't read Cohen at length. Why is it that important, and what's the answer? I think what's important, what's important about Stalin, to understand about Stalin, is that he was... Deep down, he thought he was going to be the guy who would be the messiah of humanity, save the whole human race from its condition of being stuck in this world of selfishness and degradation. Uh, I mean, everything he does, I mean, how you got to think about what is it that a man has to be able to think about himself to be able to order the murder of, of tens of millions of people at the stroke of a pen. This is a man who thought he was doing good throughout his entire life. That, it's, it's strange. Uh, uh, I, I, there's a novel by Solzhenitsyn called The First Circle, In the First Circle. Yeah. You've got a picture of Stalin in there, a psychological picture. It's, it's the, Stalin is an old man having a conversation with himself. Brilliant. And he picks up on that. He sees Stalin as a man who's really nasty and evil and conniving and so on, but deep down he thinks he's saving, a, he th saving humanity. And that's what that's the real difference, I think, between him and, and a guy like Putin. In, in this conversation in Solzhenitsyn, by the way, he imagines himself kind of like St. Peter, and maybe he's going to go up to the heaven. And you have to, like, the stunning thing when you go to the Kremlin, I've only done it in recent years, is the Kremlin is the court and the, uh, of the czars and their archbishops. And so it's full of the most beautiful churches. And the communists ruled that, that country from that place without ever tearing down those churches. Right. And so he was living amidst these spires that were, that were monuments to Jesus Christ. And Solzhenitsyn, at least, portrays Stalin as having thoughts that he was walking down the same line as Jesus Christ and his apostles. You know, I, I have only been there a couple of times. Quarrel with me if I'm wrong. I don't think anyone goes to Russia today to see anything that was built or done by any of the Soviets. I don't think there's a thing that they built or did that would attract 
uh, a cultural tourist. Am I wrong, Dr. West? Well, maybe Tom wants me to answer that. Maybe they'll start when Chernobyl is opened up and you can visit that. That's in the Ukraine, though. Yeah, that's in the Ukraine. And, and maybe dead Lenin. But I, I don't think they created anything of beauty. Uh, you know, the, I'll tell you the counterexample that proves your point. The, the, uh, the court hall, the, the, the main one in, in, uh, on the Kremlin, is one of the most beautiful rooms on Earth, one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. And they have a large photograph of it in there of what it was like in Stalin's time because the Supreme Soviet met in it for a while and they painted over all of the gold and all of the beautiful blues that are in there into a dull purple. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and now they've restored it and you can compare the room. I'll be right back. Dr. Larry Arn, Thomas West, my guest on this extended Hillsdale Dialogue for Labor Day. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the Hour America special Labor Day. Happy greeting to you from me, Hugh Hewitt, and my colleagues in the Hillsdale Dialogue special Labor Day edition. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Professor Thomas West, who's professor of politics at Hillsdale College. Uh, this is right in your wheelhouse, Arn, so I'll throw it to you. On a few occasions, um, three great men, and great defined not with a moral component, but with a significance component, Stalin, Churchill, and FDR got together. And, I, you know, I wish we could have recorded these conversations because they represent the confluence of very different points of view, uh, with FDR being the least intellectual of the three, but also the most powerful of the three in the long run. Do you think they ever talked high theory? Uh, well, first of all, there are extensive records about them talking. And uh, lots of the meetings were recorded in minutes, but also Churchill himself, you know, because he wrote about everything he did. He wrote a lot about his conversations with Stalin. And uh, uh, here's the most dramatic, you know, he, he wrote in the world, in the Second World War, that one of his most popular books, um, he wrote that, that he questioned Stalin about the Ukraine and about the collective farms and the famines. And he said, yeah, those peasants just wouldn't agree and they had to be made I'm paraphrasing and and Churchill said that he heard that and he named some number and Stalin said no no and he admitted to another number and if memory serves the number he admitted to was 8 million and Churchill recorded that and you know thought that was very indicative and another thing that's really wonderful is uh, uh, there's a long letter that Churchill wrote to Stalin and in the Churchill archive there are three versions of it and he wrote a long protest against what Stalin was doing in the second half of the war. And he made a diatribe against Karl Marx, or he made an argument against him, and invited Stalin to reconsider all that. And then he wrote on that, not sent. And then a second version, shorter, some of that remaining, not sent. And then the third version that was sent, and all that remains is, is a paragraph that's just these words, I was never any good at Karl Marx. <laughs> right, so, Dr. West, <laughs> is, is Stalin, uh, in the final analysis, is he just a progressive with visions of humanitarian grandeur, as was hinted at in the last segment? He thought he was Jesus without all the hoopla. Or, or, or with it. Or with it. <laughs> uh, and, or, and, and, and the progressives of today are just different because they're not coming out of the ashes of a Leninist revolution armed with Cheka. Uh, or is he something different entirely? 
No, what I'm saying, he's, a real, he's really a Marxist, meaning he's a guy who's not just progressive in our contemporary liberal sense. He's a guy who wants to wreck and destroy all private property, private business. Everything's going to be collectivized. The reason why he had to murder 30 million peasants by starving them to death, and some, some of them just shot and sent away to the gulag, was because he thought that uh, in order to save humanity, we all had to become... I mean, get away from people having their own farms. That was the bottom line question. So why did everyone have to repudiate? Why did Khrushchev have to give a secret speech when it was done? Why did they have to walk away from Stalin and dismantle the gulag if, in fact, he was just a Marxist and here was the next generation of Marxists? Well, the thing, the thing about Marxism is, as Marx himself said, is we've got the goals, but then the question turns into a matter of tactics and strategy. So this is one of the things I mentioned earlier about Lenin in the last segment is that Lenin uh, took Marx's idea of the party, which is going to shape the workers and shape the, the movement politically, and then got into the question of how do we organize the party and what do we get, how do we get that party structure? And basically what Lenin said about that was you've got to limit the power of the party just to the people at the very top of the party. You can't even trust the party. What Stalin did was to say, I see where that's going. The logical end of that is only one person in the whole country can yeah, be Yeah, sure. That's that, me. That, and that Mao had to do the same thing, right? So, I mean, I mean, that's not progressivism in the way we're used to it in America. Progressives actually are okay with private property as long as it's properly managed and properly controlled from the top down in the state. We're not trying to kill off the ca capitalists in this country. In fact, our whole progressive structure of government is based on crony capitalism from top to bottom. Does that erode eventually? I'll ask that of Larry Art. Does that, that break wall erode eventually? Well, that's a question about the future. And, and Churchill said, though imminent, it is obscure. <laughs> but uh, I will tell you what his prediction was. So the, you know, some rough parallel there is between the American progressives and the Fabian socialist in Britain and the, and the, the political parties in America are not that different from the ones in the United in Britain now. What he thought was the difference between the Fabians and the communists is real. That is, they mean gradualism and evolution and gentle methods. But what he said is they're going to run up against reality. And then he said famously, and more than once, historians pretend it was a single mistake, but it wasn't, um, he said that they will not be able to realize their ultimate aims without the use of a secret police. Yes, I mean a Gestapo. And what did he mean by that? He meant that in the end, you're never going to get the equality that they're after unless you assail all of the sources of it. And though the main ones, in my opinion, are property and family and faith. And those have to be constrained. And of course, moves to constrain those things are underway heavily in the United States today. And uh, I think, you know, I think um, the, the tension here, because it, it, it is the same thing, right? On the one hand, there are these utopian hopes. And on the other hand, they're not constrained really by anything outside our will. Uh, our will is all. Uh, one of our professors here, Kevin Slack, has written to point out that modern liberals believe that they're they're, they're all big followers of nature. You know, they're doing the natural thing. But what is the natural thing? The natural thing is for us to seize control of events and govern ourselves and the world toward constant improvement. And uh, that is hostile to those three sources, as I say, of independence 
and really of the scope for the individual to lead a human life. But when it collapses, and, and I guess I'll say this for the last segment with Dr. West, Dr. Arnold, and, and pick up with Paul Marino next hour. When it collapses, it collapses suddenly, and 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 it's revolting. Uh, people shoot everyone. They go and they get uh, Ceausescu. They go and they find every uh, secret policeman they can in East Germany, and they put them over the light poles because nobody wants it. And so uh, last question for Dr. West when we come back is why in the world would anyone continue to want to be known as a Marxist? Stay tuned. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, special Labor Day edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and finishing up two hours with Dr. Thomas West before he changes out with Professor Paul Marino of Hillsdale as we talk about the American labor movement and how it's been different. Last question, uh, how does it endure? Same question I asked. In Cuba, we, you know, Hopefully, by the time this airs next, both Castro brothers will have gone to meet their reward, and it will immediately revert. It will almost overnight become an extension of United States capitalism, I think. So why in the world does Piketty sell one book, much less 100,000? We've talked uh, throughout our discussion of this. We've talked about how the workers and the peasants who were originally thought supposedly going to support this movement turn out not to be very interested in it. But we haven't said much about who is interested in it. And the answer to that is intellectuals are interested in it. The Mar- Marxism has always been a movement of, a, of an elite group of intellectuals who are deeply dissatisfied with their society. Either bec- and, and, and as far back as Plato, he pointed out that one thing that uh, human beings who have ambition will always want is power. And if they're not running things, they'll, come up, they'll cook up reasons why they need to be running things. So you put that together with the lack of the, uh, our, our current lack of having a higher purpose that's being, that's being affirmed anywhere in our society. And you've got some kind of a substitute for, an, for the idea of God or the idea of honor or the idea of nature and it's in, more of in a, this grand vision. And that's what these intellectuals just, they gravitate to it. It's and, more and of a question for... Dr. Marino, but it sets up the transition beautifully, so I'll ask you. George Meany was the most virulent anti-communist, anti-Marxist that there was. He helped Nixon get elected in 68. He wanted nothing to do with it. How did Meany develop out of a labor movement devoted to equality of the working man, but retain within him the intuitive hatred of Marxism? That, that period of American history, that earlier 20th century, uh, progressivism, those guys, they they didn't want anything to do with communist Marxism. Yeah, uh, John the Fa- Dewey the hated Fabians it. in Britain too. Same, it, yeah, yeah. In the government, in the in the 1945 Labour government, a great man in many ways. There there were others that were too. Was uh, Ernest Bevan, who was a he was a dock worker and he was meaner in hell, and he hated communism, and like most of them, I think the guy meant well, you know. And they all thought it's all going to go great, you know. It's kind of like the, you know, in the election of Obama. What do we all think? You know, what so many thought. We're in the crazy minority. They all thought now we got it all fixed. Everything's going to be super. And uh, and that that's you know that and that means that a different kind of movement might grow out of a successful country than grows out of 
a place like Russia, which was dysfunctional and despotic. Excellent idea. Dr. Thomas West, you leave us now. Thanks for an amazing couple of hours of conversation. I continue on with Dr. Larry Arn and his colleague Paul Marino when we return on this Labor Day to talk about organized labor in America. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show.